This is the International Anthony Burgess Foundation podcast. A Clockwork Orange on the Stage, Part 1. In this episode, the Burgess Foundation's Will Carr talks to the award-winning playwright John Godber about his 1976 adaptation of A Clockwork Orange. This adaptation was the first time that the novel had been brought to the stage and provided a key influence to Burgess when he eventually wrote his own version, A Clockwork Orange, A Play With Music, in 1987. John trained as a drama teacher at Bretton Hall College before becoming artistic director of Hull Truck Theatre Company. He is one of Britain's most acclaimed playwrights and has delighted audiences for over 40 years with plays including Bouncers, Up and Under and Happy Families. In 2018 he was awarded the OBE for Services to the Arts. He is currently the creative director of the Theatre Royal Wakefield and artistic director of the John Godber Company. This interview was conducted to coincide with the online exhibition A Clockwork Orange on Stage, now open on our website, www.anthonyburgess.org. Well, hi John, thanks so much for joining us for this podcast about uh, A Clockwork Orange on Stage. Um, Perhaps not enough people know that you wrote an adaptation of Clockwork Orange uh, back in 1976 for the theatre, and it would be great if you could tell us all about it. So I wanted to start by asking, how did you come to A Clockwork Orange? Uh, was it via the novel or Stanley Kubrick's film or, or some other means? I think I read the novel first, and then I was um, taken by the film. And then what, what, what had happened, I was training to be a drama teacher at Bretton Hall College near Wakefield. And as part of your third year, um, you had to direct a play uh, because it was very much the learning by doing philosophy that was uh, alive at Bretton in those days. Uh, and I uh, approached the head of drama, a fellow called John Hodgson, and said, I'd like to write my own play. Um, and he said, well, nobody can write their own play. They're not, they're not good enough. And I said, well, what if I adapted a novel and, and brought it to you, um, would you think about letting me do it? And he said, it, it, yeah, but the likelihood is zero. So I went away, uh, and over that Christmas, which would be 1976, I think, I sat down in the chair in my mum's living room, and I got a pen out, and I, I adapted uh, the, the book into a stage play, and it just felt... It just felt like a piece of. It was very easy because because I was, I guess I was you know I was a young I was a Leeds United supporter. There was a lot of there was a lot of macho things around the film. There was a lot of macho. There's a lot of macho in the book. So was Clockwork Orange sort of in in the culture at the time? Was it in the air? Is that how you describe it? Hugely, hugely in the air where I lived. And a little bit of background was, you know, I'm, I'm from a mining background. My dad was a miner, my mum was a dinner lady. So to have the kind of attraction of a kind of glorification of violence or even something that was just such an expression of youth, um, that was something that we would, I, I, me and my friends were very much drawn to. And also the urgency of the book. I mean, even though, you know, it, it's, uh, it, it's quite esoteric in a sense, there was an urgency about what do you do with, with the Alexes of this world. And, and, and I equated that to the, you know, the skinhead. I'd seen skinhead fights with 
various subgroups and, and, and one thing and another. And there was something very theatrical for me about the novel, which, which in a way wasn't realised in the film. I thought the film was fantastic. I, the difficulty for me with the film was I found it exciting as a young man watching it. Well, the, the violence and energy of it, the kind of, or the kind of gratuitousness of some of it. The, the counterpointing with the, with the opera, the, the, the sexy kind of aspects of violence and how it was portrayed, the glorification of violence in it to high-end musical accompaniment. That, I'd never seen anything like that before. It was... It, was, it, it wasn't like watching a film for me. It was like watching a, an opera. And the whole kind of, the whole um, status of the film became enormous. And I remember as a sixth form, a, a, me and a, a mate of mine, we went to the sixth form fancy dress as Alex and Din. And we, you know, we were, we got the whole kit and the, and the eyelash, you know, the one eyelash and the, the baseball and the, and the bowler hat and the, and the, and the cod piece and the whole thing. And it, I mean, sad to admit that, but we bought the whole kind of visual package of that. And it, 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 looking back at it now, it was, a, it was a way of us expressing part of our kind of macho through, through a kind of art form. And that's what I think we found very uh, actually arousing about the book and, and, and in particular the film. Well, maybe you could talk a bit about the adaptation itself then. How, do, how did you present the, the violence on the stage? Well, I think what, one of the fascinating things for me about the book was how easy it became a play because it's told from Alex's point of view and it's told from outside itself. And as, as somebody who had become very influenced by Bertolt Brecht, that was a, that was a kind of presentational way of, of, um, of telling the story. So in my version, I had two Alexes. I had Alex, what's it going to be then? Um, and then introducing the younger Alex. For reasons that I'm actually sat here, chatting to you now, struggling to actually put my finger on why, I decided to dress the droogs in top hat and tails. And, and I'd been influenced by Fred Astaire, and, and my mum was a big musical fan, and putting on the Ritz and all those kind of things. Right. And, and there was a kind of fusion in, in, in my mind between the, the, the kind of glorification of the violence in the film and, and, and whether or not I could counterpoint that in the stage play by having them carry out the acts of violence to... to, to Fred Astaire songs, which seemed as bizarre as carrying out acts of violence to, to you know... To um, Beethoven and... and other... Beethoven or, or the Thieving Magpie, you know, that yes. kind of thing. So, um, and I think because I, I was playing a lot of sport at that time, played a lot of rugby union, I, I just started kind of uh, bodybuilding, and I think that was part and parcel of the whole kind of, you know, the the a the macho Leeds United thing and also a clockwork orange and also coming from a mining background but not actually being a miner, being being interested in, in literature. So the whole kind of physicalization of uh, of my particular adolescence bled into trying to find a way to make the violence uh, work without it being actually physical violence. Um, 
And that, in a weird way, that was the least of my concerns when I did the, the, the adaptation because I'd been influenced by lots of people at Breton who, when we were talking about split focuses, we were talking about ex- expressionistic, expressionistic drama um, uh, styles. Uh, Burkhoff had become very much the, the kind of doyen of, of, of British theatre at that time in his first play, East had just come out, and as young students, we thought that was, you know, the dog's bollocks. Uh, so there's all this kind of physicalization going on. And so so in my production, I didn't want anybody to be physically touched. I, 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 that seemed to uh, deplete the strength of the imagination that would play out on the audience. So any of the violence, for example, with F. Alexander took place when, where... Um, at one side of the stage, he was somebody had a baseball bat, and the F. Alexander was reacting to that at the at the other side of the stage, and similarly with the with the sexual abuse, um, that was almost dance like. We couldn't it, we couldn't create that in any way, because in a, in a in a strange way, by creating the very similitude of that violence on stage, in a way diminished its effect. To my mind, anyway. Uh, tell, tell us a bit, a bit more about the the sort of the adaptation itself. You mentioned that there were two Alexes. So, so how did that work? There, there's there's one which was the young Alex and one that was an older older Alex. Were they on stage at the same time? Yeah, uh, absolutely. In fact, the um, the older Alex, who is the storyteller, is telling it post Ludovico's technique. Which, which spoke to me directly as, a, as a, when I read it. I thought, oh, this is very easy to do. We have, we have old Alex telling the story. So it becomes like a parable and young, young Alex acting out his, you know, his younger life. Um, and eventually, you know, that was at a time when the, the novel finished, I'm cured all right. And, and we're left with post-Ludovico technique, Alex, you know, um, in a wheelchair. Um, recounting recounting his story um the the other constraints that we had of course is that we we didn't have casts of thousands and in fact the budget was probably zero so i think we had maybe seven or eight in the cast so everybody had to you know alex dim and george were, were, were only played themselves alex narrator played alex narrator and various other you know um again borrowing from the kind of expressionists, man, doctor, woman, man in street, policeman, you know, those, those kind of themes. They were just, they, they were kind of uh, ciphers, if you like. But it, 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 it was so enjoyable to adapt because it just seemed to me, uh, I mean, I, became, I was a huge fan of Burgess anyway, and, and just his, the way that he used language spoke absolutely directly to me as somebody who wanted to make theatre. So, were you aware of Burgess as a as a figure, um, as a sort of literary figure, and had you read any of his other work? I'd seen him, and at that time, uh, he was endlessly on Parkinson, right? And he seemed to be now. now th- there's a link here because obviously, somebody from Yorkshire, uh, 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 one would watch Parkinson and think, well, he speaks with my accent. And it's almost like, and Anthony Burgess was always on Parkinson, almost like a, 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 like a, 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 a every fortnight. And he insisted on smoking all the time. And I remember him saying 
that he was an autodidact. And I, I, I became fascinated by that notion because my dad, who was a, a minor at that time, had gone to Leeds University as part of the Workers' Education Association and had been taught by Harold Wilson and had done PPE taught by Wilson. And even though he was still working at the pit, my dad was, and still is, hugely literary. And uh, so the whole idea, and, and he would give me copies of the Regis Digest to, to consume, and in particular a, a section called Increase Your Word Power. So to see somebody as erudite and urbane as Burgess on TV, sounding like he went to Oxford but didn't, he became a kind of a, uh, not a hero figure, but whenever he was on, I watched him because he seemed to have a real grasp, an overview of, uh, of, of, of political and, 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 and social-political situations. So, yeah, I, 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 I was aware of him through... And don't forget, I mean, when Clockwork Orange came out, the film, it was everywhere. Yes. Yeah, it was a phenomenon, uh, wasn't it? And then there was all the controversy about, yeah. you know, the effect it had on audiences and all that kind of thing. And that's something I wanted to ask as well, actually. What, what effect did you want your adaptation to have on the audience in the script that's, that I've seen? Um, there's a stage direction which says um, they should make the audience cringe at, uh, at, at one particular point of, of violence. And I, I, I thought that was very interesting, especially in the context of what you were saying about the very kind of stylized approach to, to rendering the violence. Just wondered if you could um, just describe what, what kind of effect you, you might have wanted it all to have. Well, you can bear in mind I'm only 19 when I'm doing this, so I really don't know what I'm talking about at that time. Um, I was just, it was just a passion and a desire to want to tell that story. And I, and I, and I, I guess what I wanted to communicate was, was in a way, the, not only Dim's plight, and I was fascinated by, by the way we make the police, you know, there's a, I think there's a line in it where he talks about thugs being enrolled into the police force. That was very interesting to me. Alex's natural penchant for violence and a really seminal line, which I use even now, is I think it's something like, I see what is right and approve, but I do what is wrong. So there is something in the novel for me and the way I assimilated it that saw the book very much as a parable and a parable for those times and a parable for how we deal with violent and potentially violent youth, which in a way, looking back at it, you know, at the age of 64, the, the film, without question, because it took a particularly, uh, what's the word? I, I want to say theatrical, but that's not quite right, but it did, it did make the opera, it made it an opera in a way that I, di I didn't think the novel was an opera to me. The, the, the novel, the, the novella to me is a parable and the film became operatic. And that's what made it so confusing to an adolescent to, to be appalled by the violence, but also physically aroused by the violence. And that, I, that dialectic, that paradox, I think is what is fascinating about the whole, particularly at that time. I mean, nobody had seen anything like that. 
you know, that kind of the glorification of it. Um, and I think that's that kind of got in the way of what the message was behind the behind the film. I wondered if you could talk a little bit about the endings of your play, because the, again, the script that that I've seen, which I think is a slightly later version than the the first one you wrote back in 1975-76, um, has two endings. Uh, there's one where the Alex character menacingly says, "I was cured, all right," as you as you mentioned, which which is in one version of the novel and in Kubrick's film version. And then there's another ending that you wrote where Alex becomes a reformed character. I was very interested in that that there was uh, an opportunity to to have either, and I wondered what um, I wondered what your intentions were and whether you had a preference. Well, the original was "I'm cured, all right," because that was the, the the original novel that I read. Uh, and it kind of, you know, it kind of left the audience thinking, "Oh my God, you know, uh, has he been has he been dehumanized, or or or, or, or is this fact that I'm cured all right actually nothing to do with Ludovico's technique? Has it not worked, and is he just back to square one?" When we remounted the show, and 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 the show was done first of all at Bretton Hall, and then at the Edinburgh Festival. And then I don't know if we mentioned that it opened a, a, a pub theatre in London called The Man in the Moon, which was the first thing that they produced, which is at the end of King's Road in Chelsea. And by that time, I'd become aware of the epilogue that Burgess had put together, where he essentially says, you know, we're all little Alexes and we all itty along in our own fashion and then we grow up. And it was just a kind of phase I was going through. And, and, and during the complication of working out whether or not we had the rights to actually do it, which I'm not, even to this day, I'm not sure that we actually ever did have the rights to do it. Um, I thought it was probably a sensible idea to, to, to take account of Burgess's new ending, just in case it came anywhere near it. I see. Well, it, I, I've been looking into the, the history of all this in our collections here in Manchester and I'm afraid that there isn't any record of of you having the rights to to put on the uh, put on the play or the Man in the Moon Theatre or anybody really. And um, but one thing that did happen was that uh, Burgess met with uh, Richard Lewis, who with whom you worked um, in 1985, immediately prior to writing his own version. I wonder if you could um, uh, don't, well just tell me a little bit a bit about your work with Richard because he he produced a version of the play, I think, and played Alex and and I think is another figure in this story. Absolutely. Well, I mean, the real irony with Rich in this is that Rich uh, came to Britain. Uh, he was a, a very, very athletic young fella. I think he was the three A's county sprinting champion. Uh, he turned up at Wakefield Station with with no hair and a beard and, and, and I immediately got him to play rugby for the, for the team. Uh, so when I wanted an Alex, he was an obvious Alex. I mean, he was an absolute ball of energy and straight out of Deptford and a real kind of uh, East End lad. The fact that he went on later to produce the stage versions of Peppa Pig, uh, uh, you know, I let him tell his own narrative as to how he got to that. But Rich was a perfect Alex because, to my mind, he, he he was a fireball. He was he was on fire. He was wrestling with energies. That, he'd, uh, that, that were absolutely clear. So Richard played Alex. Neil Sissons, who is a tutor at Sheffield Hallam, played Dim. Uh, and various other Rick Bond played um, 
uh, Georgie boy, I think it was. Uh, and then when we came to mount it again in London, uh, I asked Rich if Rich would play uh, Alex again. And that was at the time when I was just about to leave teaching and to come to Hull to run Hull Truck. And at my first meeting at Hull Truck, we discovered the company was insolvent. And I, I suggested I might write a play about rugby league to save the company. And uh, because we couldn't uh, afford to audition anybody, I, I, I made six phone calls to six of my mates. One of them was Richard. One of, one of them is my now wife. And, and we, we wrote Between Us Up and Under, which won an Olivier Award and went to the West End. And then Richard then started to work with Bill Kenwright. And that's, that's when Rich, I think, had the, a better status to approach Anthony Burgess. There was some discussion because Richard produced it for a second time at the Man in the Moon. It was a, it was a massive hit at the Man in the Moon. And again, like you're saying, you know, we never had that. We could have been sent to hell for this, you know, to put on a play. And bear in mind, I'm a teacher at this time. You know, the, the school that I'm teaching at, I'm head of drama. They're, they're letting me have time off paid to go to London to open a pub theatre with a production of A Clockwork Orange that I didn't have the rights to do. So I'm, I'm paid by Wakefield District Council to go and do that, which, which, is, uh, which is bizarre. And, and there are probably somewhere reviews in City Limits and Time Out and The Stage and The Times. And there, there seemed to be a real kind of interest in it, uh, because stylistically it was very different to anything anybody else. It was very Burkhoff. That, that, that's the best way I can describe it. It was very stylish. There was, uh, there was, a, there was a, 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 an electric synth drum on stage. So everything was kind of, we thought we were the cutting edge, you know. Um, and there was very, it was the kind of thing to be, it, we thought it was almost like Rocky Horror Show. Right, right. Work with people dressing up and um... yeah, oh yeah, yeah, that, that that kind of thing. And it, and it, and the Man in the Moon wasn't that far from where Rocky Horror Show had started in the cinema on Kings Road. But we, in truth, we didn't have the experience. And and I think it's Lee Shine who who started the venue with I think a guy called Robert Quick, whose dad was head of he was professor of English at, at Imperial College or something like that. And they were very enthusiastic about about the production, but I had to then after the show was on, I disappeared back to, to teaching, and I think the show ran for three weeks, and that's when I think uh, there was a conversation with Bill Kenwright about what to do with it, and then later Richard, obviously, who went to become general manager with Bill Kenwright, must have had that uh, that meeting with Anthony Burgess. Yes, and and from what I can gather, the um... The, the possibility of making a Clockwork Orange into perhaps a bigger production with Bill Kenwright Productions uh, didn't didn't happen. And uh, Burgess writes his own um, his own adaptation at that point. And it's only later uh, that the that Burgess's own script is taken up by the RSC and it eventually appears in 1990. Um, I, I wondered what happened to Clockwork Orange as far as you were concerned, though. You, you said you, you returned back to teaching, um, and and did, did you ever return to your play? No, I didn't, because what had happened, and again, this is, you know, I don't want to get anecdotal, but it, uh, this is how deep Clockwork Orange went. 
I was teaching a group of very difficult kids on a Friday afternoon. And I used to use the Clockwork Orange as a literary text to get kids interested in telling stories. And I said, look, this is a film and you can't get over of the film. It's been, it's been pulled. Uh, Kubrick's pulled it. And one lad put his hand up and said, my brother's got a copy. And I said, uh, Mark, don't be daft. Uh, nobody's got a copy. Sir, my brother's got a, a copy. Look, please, let's just get on with this. Sir, my brother's got a copy. So I, so I said, okay, if your brother's got a copy, mate, here is a note. Go on and bring me the copy. So I sent this lad out of the lesson across the uh, council estate. And he came back with a VHS of a clockwork orange. And did you show it to them all? Well, I couldn't because I because, because it was it had been banned. <laughs> so, but the point I'm making is that it was such an influence. It had somebody somehow in a mining village in West Yorkshire in 1981 had got a bootleg Beta Max version of the film. Now, where had they got it from? I had no idea. The only other place since then, and up to maybe maybe even 30 years ago, where you could see a Clockwork Orange was, a, 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 I don't know if you know Paris well, but behind the Shakespearean bookshop near the Notre Dame, there's a little cinema. And it was playing there almost constantly. Nowhere else on the planet, to my knowledge, could you see the film except from down Emsel, where this kid on the council estate had got a, 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 got a VHS version. But it, it, it had become like gold. And there are, there are so many other apocryphal stories, because, for example, when I was, before I started the adaptation, a lot of Leeds fans started to emulate the behaviour of the Drugs, and it hit a lot of the press, and unfortunately, and again, this is as I remember it, and it's utterly bizarre, some skinheads beat some sheep with some sticks near the village I grew up in, and it got in the local press. And they were doing it, to, and they were, they were imitating the scene in the subway from a clockwork orange. Now, that's both a testament to its power and also to the danger, the ludicrousness of unleashing this that kind of romantic glorification of violence out to a out to a, a, a kind of you know fertile adolescent mind that didn't know what to do with that information. And and what happened next for you then? I mean, you you said you you went on to write Up and Under, which is a very different kind of kind of work, and there's Bouncers and Toys of Age and and many other. It's a very successful place, but um, where do you think a Clockwork Orange kind of fits into your, you know, in, into your story as a as a playwright and director? Oh, it's right at the beginning. What's fascinating is when I came to Hull, uh, I, I came to run a theater, to run a theatre company that, as I said, was insolvent. But my own research degree, my I did a master's degree at Leeds, and then I did a PhD in, in a guy called John McHenry, who was very much influenced by uh, the German expressionists. Uh, and, and quite esoteric work. Um, and had I gone to London to be a playwright, Clockwork Orange would have been one of the things I probably would have put on. Coming to Hull in 1984, there wasn't a really big demand for German Expressionist theatre, uh, work of the Weimar Republic. 
and that's why I wrote up and under. And in a way, I I had to turn my back on that style of work because it, as someone who was charged with running a venue and directing in a venue and making work for a venue, it would have closed that venue in Hull probably in a fortnight. Uh, and the reason I wrote up an under was simply to, to appeal to a constituency that was interested in rugby league. I, I myself had played rugby union. Uh, it, it's not a big leap, but, it, but, but in, some, in some instances, it, it, you, you might say it, it, you cross the great divide. Um, so I had to subjugate some of what had got me into theatre to start with when I came uh, to run whole truck. Now, if if you were to say, did the work on the Clockwork Orange influence any of my work? Yes, without question. It's there in bounces as a kind of, I think what somebody in the time said, snarlingly Jacobean kind of feel to the work, a darkness to the work, an edge to the work. Um, I was I, I was actually, I couldn't bring myself to watch the RSC version. I don't know if it's good, bad or indifferent. Uh, but I read... Obviously, I read the Burgess published version, and and, and I and I actually sat down and thought, oh, it's not that different to mine. So what I did must have been very, it, it must have been something that Burgess might have liked had he seen it. Burgess never did see it, as far as we know, um, but he he certainly read it uh, because we've we found a copy of your script. It's the nineteen eighty four version, so it's got both endings in it. Um, uh, and we've got a copy of it here in our collections and uh, correspondence alongside it, um, which shows that the Burgess wrote back to his agent saying, yes, let them get on with it. Uh, you know, they, they, this, uh, <laughs> uh, 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 which is a very brief one line kind of letter. But what he, do, what he doesn't mention is his conversation with Richard Lewis. Uh, he doesn't and he doesn't at all anywhere note that. Um, in fact, that certain elements of your version, you know, the kind of limited cast, the um, stylized approach to, to violence, you know, very highly choreographed uh, stage business, um, the the sort of, uh, well, almost expressionist, if I might say, uh, approach that he takes. He doesn't mention any, any of that, but it seems to me at least that uh, Burgess's version does in fact owe a great deal to, to yours. Uh, and it's pretty clear from the timeline that he he read it um, just at the moment that he was uh, he was writing his own. Um, so, which is one of the reasons that I think that, that your version is such an important part of the story. Um, it may be in the Burgess would have done his own adaptation anyway, but the form, the form that it took and the end product I think owes a lot um, to the to the script that that he read uh, in 1985. Yeah, that is fascinating, and um, yeah. It, 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 it it's very interesting going back to it because um, because there was some, there is still something very potent in that in the story and the brilliance of the of the of the Argo and the way that he uses very economic storytelling and uh, uh, and just the way he captures the danger of Alex quite, quite separate to the whole thing about the you know how do we subjugate violence and, and, and brainwashing and societal change and all those kind of things. And it's, um, 
my 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 kids read it recently, and they, I mean, they, and they are you know they're, they're graduates, and they they said, oh wow, that's still that still has got something to say about how we are today. I think that sounds like a good moment to end. Actually, thank you very much, John, for uh, well telling us the story of your Clockwork Orange. It's been a pleasure. You have been listening to the International Anthony Burgess Foundation podcast. More information about John Godber's work can be found at thejohngodbercompany.co.uk. For more about Anthony Burgess and the work of the Burgess Foundation, visit www.anthonyburgess.org. If you've enjoyed listening to the podcast, why not leave us a review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts?